Welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast, the world's most schizoid podcast. I'm your host, Cooper Cherry. Today we have Dr. Justin Hart joining us. Uh, Justin is a roboticist working here at the University of Texas. Uh, welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks. Um, so, Justin, how do you? How does one get into robotics? Like, what was your sort of journey? Is this something that you've always been fascinated with from, you know, growing up, or how did you get interested? So, when I initially got into computers and programming, uh, that was really the route that I got into artificial intelligence, and then being into artificial intelligence led me to robotics. So. Um, so like what age would you say you got started in terms of development, programming and what have you? Right. So when I was a little, little kid, my family had a computer and this was the 1980s. I was born in 80. Oh, nice. When, when I was a kid, we had a Texas Instruments 99 4A computer. And really the only thing you could do with that computer is program it. It came with a manual that described the basic language and it came with a big book of source code for programs. And if you wanted to do anything, you would actually type in the source code to those programs or buy them on cartridges that would go in there. And the storage was actually audio tape that would get played in through the computer. And around the time that I learned to read, I said, oh, I can type in these programs and I can make my computer do things. Um, and to me, that was pretty interesting, pretty neat. And then I learned that I could customize these programs a bit. And then as I got older, uh, I convinced my parents to get bigger, better computer hardware and programming manuals and things uh, to where we had uh, C compilers and uh, a Mac with like HyperCard and little development <laughs> suites. Nice. And uh, eventually a PC, like an early PC, not an early, early PC, uh, when I was a teenager, we had like a like a 50 megahertz Dell, you know, <laughs> um, and I got into Linux. I got uh, DJ Delory's DJ GPP compiler uh, collection um, and was developing little applications under Windows. I got a copy of Visual Studio and did a bunch of AI projects and checked out like every book in my library. And eventually, through the course of checking out literally every book in my library, I got to the ones on robots. Nice. And there were two that really caught my attention. Um, one I can't remember the title of, but it was literally someone who was building a hobbyist version of the robots that they were building at, I think it was Carnegie Mellon at the time, that were these trash can style robots, where a trash can robot is sort of a... a vertical cylindrical robot with a sensor suite usually along the bottom at the time the problems that they were interested in was like building maps of the hallway and doing some basic navigation okay. uh, and then the bigger projects were things like autonomous navigation and stuff like that but um and then the other one was the robot builders bonanza and the guy who wrote this was like he was like a repairman at like a vcr shop i can't remember his exact uh provenance but he wasn't like an academic professor, but he knew how everything worked, like the guts on the inside. He still publishes editions of this book, too. Oh, nice. But you could read this book, and it would tell you how an encoder would work on the inside. That's the thing we measure how far a motor is turned using. So if I tell my robot to turn its uh, arm joint to 15 degrees so it's flexed a little bit, 
uh, the encoder will tell me when I've hit 15 degrees, and then that'll feed into my controller that'll allow me to do what's called servo control and hold the arm at that pose. So I completely devoured those books, and around the same time, um, there were some really interesting experiments going on. Uh, one of the people who is sort of influential to my decision to go into robotics was Rodney Brooks. And around that time, uh, my doctoral advisor, the guy who supervised my PhD and uh, other students in Rodney Brooks's lab. So my doctoral advisor was Brian Scassolati and he was working on a robot called Cog. And he was working with uh, another famous roboticist, Cynthia Brazil, and just a whole bunch of people who were in that lab at MIT at that time. And I read articles on COG that were like, we're trying to build something that models human intelligence. Everything I've been reading was like, this is how we play chess. This is what a search algorithm looks like. This is some basic machine learning. And then someone's coming out of left field. And, you know, I had this impression of what AI was, that it was, you know, we were going to build a chess player that was going to, be the world's best chess player because that hadn't happened yet you know that happened towards the end of high school for me um and then suddenly there was this completely alternate goal that was we're going to build people robots that are going to behave like people that are going to develop adult human level competencies um and that was pretty intriguing to me um and so immediately i said this is what i want to do with my life uh this is what i'm going to do um, and then I kind of got a little bit sidetracked from that. Uh, I went because what was really going on at that time was the initial dot com boom, you know. And so my thought was, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to go work at a dot com while this is exciting, you know, while this is the thing to do. And, um, you know, I, I went, I did my undergraduate degree at West Virginia. Uh, I raced through in three years. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, let's get out there to Silicon Valley. And I graduated in 2001, which was the year of the dot-com bust. And so I had had this image of let's go to a startup. Everything that's exciting right now is this. And, and I did go to a startup, and I worked there for three years. It was a wonderful experience. And then I uh, applied and enrolled to Cornell. I did a master's there, and uh, my first project there was what was called the DARPA Grand Challenge, uh, which was an autonomous vehicle race through the Mojave Desert. I was in the second DARPA Grand Challenge uh, with a huge team. There were like 200 people. And I cannot claim to be anywhere near you know, <laughs> the top of the organization in that team. They were really rolling by the time I got involved. But I was, I was involved in that. And I was working at the Intelligent Information Systems Institute at Cornell under Bart Selman and Carla Gomes, who, you know, sort of supervised my first, like, real research position and uh, did some natural language stuff with Claire Cardi um, and then went to Yale and did my PhD with SCAS, did a postdoc at UBC with Elizabeth Croft and then came here to work with uh, Peter Stone and Ray Mooney. And I do a lot of exciting stuff at Austin now. So that's kind of the that's kind of the short version. Right. So just to back up real quick, so what did you do your undergrad in? Computer science? Computer science, yeah. I have, I have five degrees in computer science. <laughs> uh, a bachelor's, a master's of engineering, and then you get two en route degrees at Yale. Uh, one is a master's of science. One's a master's of philosophy. These really 
mark different points in the degree program that you've completed. So, right. you know, if you dip out and you don't finish your PhD, you know, everyone knows that if you got your MPhil, you were working on your thesis when you left. Right. Um, and then hopefully you defend your thesis and, you know, get your PhD and kind of finish and, you know, do all the good things that come with that. Okay. I guess that's a, that's a good, that's a good basis to start from, uh, in terms of your career origins and so to speak, but, uh, let's jump into what do you think would be the best, I you might be better, uh, <clears throat> equipped to ha handle this in terms of how we should structure. Um, I was thinking the, uh, was it the Nico? Was that sort of Nico. the Nico? Yeah. Um, perhaps that would be a good starting point for us. Sure. To venture into. So uh, Nico is a custom upper torso humanoid robot that was developed at Yale. Uh, the initial development happened before I was there. I sort of took over the project during my time there. Uh, Nico is modeled after about the 18-month-old male infant at the 50th percentile. Uh, male only because the male infant's slightly larger. Uh, and so uh, it's very difficult to machine small parts and can be uh, just challenging to, to do the assembly and fabrication for those parts. And the idea is that you have this robot, which has a form factor, which is conducive to when you approach the robot, not assuming it has adult level competencies because it looks like a little baby. Right. So if you're doing social human robot interaction or HRI, um, you know, there's a certain prototype that you're bringing to this uh, to this interaction that says this is not an adult thing. Um, so if it does uh, things at an infant level or if it does a very simplified version of it, you know, I understand. Um, and we did a bunch of really cool HRI experiments on that platform. Uh, one of them that was done early on with uh, Wilma Bainbridge, who was an undergraduate student in, at Yale at the time, and uh, Elizabeth Kim, who is, she's working at some hospital as a research scientist now, working with children with autism. Uh, what we did is we had, the robot would be either physically co-located with you in a room, or we would have it over a telepresence program like Skype that we put together, and the robot would point at different objects in the room and then gesture for you to do things. So it would point at like a book at the corner of the desk that it was at and it would point at a shelf and then you would pick up the book and put it on the shelf, hopefully. Or maybe you wouldn't listen to that order, right? Maybe you wouldn't do it. Um, and we had a couple interesting uh, little interactions. You would do this vignette like three times with three different books, but the sort of ultimate one, the one at the end, the robot would point at a pile of books and it would point at this like rusty, disgusting garbage can. Actually, it's just the garbage cans that were in our office because, <laughs> because Yale has a lot of really old buildings. They treasure having these like very old Ivy League looking buildings. Legacy right? buildings. Right. And so the garbage cans in our, in our building hadn't been updated because they hadn't modernized because they liked that look. And so, <laughs> and so we had this rusty garbage can that eventually they did replace them while I was there. But it was gross. And the robot would point at that. And when the robot was in the same room as the person, the person would always do it. But when the robot was telepresent, when it was on a, a video screen, people were less likely to comply with that demand. So we actually found some interesting things about the fact that uh, these, these human notions 
uh, also transfer to robots, right? That, that if I'm more influential because I'm sitting here talking to you now than I would be over the phone or over Skype, you know, it turns out that putting a robot in the same with, room with you, you're more likely to comply with this with this demand. Interesting. Um, so yeah, and actually, 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 people have taken that one all over the place. That yeah, that you know what I want to take that in the direction of like D- Derrida and the you know presence versus absence, and yeah. that's kind of an interesting like deconstructive idea actually. So so this, that you could even get into this does play into a notion um, called it. It plays a little bit into notions of telepresence, and it plays a little bit into notions of does someone seem socially present and can we make that social presence more known? Uh, that's certainly, that's certainly an angle that we explored there. You could take it in a different angle. You could explore a contrast between physical robots and virtual agents. Uh, we didn't use like a virtual reality robot, but you could easily do the same experiment with a robot and a virtual reality robot and then compare against, you know, the sort of, uh, telepresent robot. Um, there, there's, you know, there are a bunch of, different ways to interpret that result uh and and since that experiment there have been a bunch of people who have explored a lot of those little angles uh more in depth than than we did with that initial result but but we were very happy with uh just how influential that has been and and how many people have kind of taken something away from that right what i one element that you could maybe speak to that i thought was sort of interesting is sort of the research i guess the research on maybe psychology and other fields that sort of played a role even into the you know when you're talking about the size of this robot you know how how that decision was even made or you know what i mean the the design elements you know what drove that process so to speak so so psychology actually plays um a big role in uh well it depends on who you ask and what problem you're talking about right Psychology can at times play a big role in both artificial intelligence and human-robot interaction. Certainly in my background and in my approach, it's played a bigger role. You know, my doctoral advisor was the chair of the cognitive science program at Yale. He was in the, he was, you know, he was in the computer science department. He was the chair of the cognitive science program. So he brought a certain flavor to what he was teaching me. But when you look at um, intelligent behavior, or when you look at social behavior, the thing that we have the most evidence in, the thing that's been the most studied for the longest time is, you know, psychology, right? People have studied, um, you know, gaze patterns and eye contact. And this is a huge area of robotics because we understand that to some degree in uh, the human behavior. And we can look at how we can emulate this in robotic behavior. And we can build really good models of how this works. And... Uh, we still don't have it all figured out. You know, we don't have robots that make flawless eye contact and communicate exactly what we want. We don't have models that completely thoroughly describe gaze patterns and communication or what they mean, though I have colleagues and friends who've been working on this in depth for their entire career, that that's like exactly what they're known for, right? Um, And yet we can explore this from both a psychological angle and from an angle of artificial intelligence at the same time and do something that, um, you know, is informative to both fields. Um, one of the challenges when you start from this sort of cognitive perspective is that you want to build a device and you want to build an algorithm, you want to build a machine and you do an experiment and the question becomes, well, what did, what did your experiment demonstrate? Right? Because, 
you can't necessarily say that the robot did the same thing a person would. Um, from an exterior perspective, you could take some measurements and you can, you can sort of say, was the external behavior the same? But the guts and the implementation and how it, how it works on the inside, you engineered something to produce that similar external stimulus based on um, a hypothesis that you developed of how gaze works, right? Um, you know, we haven't dissected the human brain enough and neuroscience isn't far along enough to say, oh, this is exactly how right. visual attention works or what's conveyed or what this person was doing. So, you know, what did you show at that point? Well, uh, you know, you can really hedge it in a lot because you can stay up to speed with the latest neuroscience. You can stay up to speed with the latest psychology. You can make your algorithms and, and your mechanisms more closely resemble what's known from that front. You can do something that may be informative to those fields because you discover something new in, you know, the behavior that you did in your experiment. Um, you know, but it's hard to say that you perfectly fit this human model with right. what you're building, right? Um, you know, that's, that's, that's a constant challenge, especially if your goal is to build robots that are just like people, right? Um, and then you could be in an area of artificial intelligence where they sort of go, well, we know that the approach isn't that similar, and, but it accomplishes what we want, right? So when you think about autonomous driving and how the robot figures out its directions where it's going to navigate, it's going to use a search algorithm and those search algorithms, uh, you know, are able to solve a wide variety of problems and they're able to uh, analyze the world in a very specific way, but probably that specific mechanism is not implemented in the human brain, right? And um, Right, yeah, there's no sort of analog for that exact, you know what I mean, sort of, it's, diff it's a different, I don't know, there's a, it doesn't translate one-to-one, -one, so to speak, I guess. Is, right, right. and, and, and uh, you know, um, for those problems, it probably doesn't matter that it doesn't translate perfectly. Right. If it accomplishes what you're trying yeah, to do, exactly. which is get from point A to point B, you know, um, but you can run into difficulties there. Uh, for instance, if you're doing grasp planning, um, there's a researcher who's done some really interesting stuff. Uh, Anka Dragon, she's at Stanford. Uh, she's a professor over there. And, you know, if I if I reach using a classical robot motion planner, it could be really non-obvious what I'm reaching to at first, right? Until I do the grasp. But when a human reaches at something, you can pretty early in that reach tell where I'm reaching, what I'm reaching for. Uh, and so this dimension of that path plan is called legibility. And so can you develop a legible path plan on a robot? And now you do have certain constraints where you're trying to say, well, um, you know, is the plan that the robot arm is, you know, planning with its reach, is that informative as to what it's trying to reach because it's collaborating with a human collaborator and that person needs to have some idea of what the robot's trying to do so uh, that they can I do see. their part right. of the collaboration. They have to perceive. Right. Whereas if you were using, you know, um, you know, any number of random exploration algorithms to generate that path, or uh, you could end up developing a path that's very difficult to understand until it's complete. So there's a, there's a lot of dimensions to explore in robotics. Part of what makes it exciting is that there's so many different, you know, avenues to go down. Uh, part of what can make it, you know, frustrating at times is that people are all chasing different hypotheses. And, you know, um, you know maybe, maybe there's something that you're just like, if, if we just solve this, then the next step, you know, or, or right. whatever. Um, 
And, but, you know, it's exciting because there's a lot going on. When you go to a conference, you can see a million different things. Yep. Nice. Uh, I'm kind of curious what the develop, development environment is for these types of robots in terms of, you know, what, what sort of programming languages are you using? What is the, what's the hardware processing power? Um, you know what I mean? Right. That sort of thing. Well, so the most common, the most common, common piece of software people are deploying on robots right now is something called robot operating system. And so people will short for that as ROS. And robot operating system is really a middleware layer. Uh, you'll load up Linux and you load up, load up ROS and you load up a program that establishes uh, two basic pieces of functionality, though they do various things with this. One's called a publish-subscribe architecture, one's called a remote procedure call. We don't have to go deeply into what those are, but uh, publish-subscribe means uh, maybe I have a sensor and it's looking for an object and maybe it can track uh, these AR tags, which are basically printable markers that we can put onto objects. So I could say this is the Mountain Dew bottle by printing an AR tag that goes on that. Okay, so right. I guess an example would be like a QR code or something that the sensor could Very pick similar. up on, something like that, right? Very okay. similar. It's a picture that it recognizes. Okay. And so um, if I'm tracking an object like that and I put it into a ROS topic, I can have a live feed of where with respect to the robot that thing is at any given time. Um, so that would go on a topic and then a remote procedure call. Uh, why can't I? Th oh, it's called a ROS service under ROS. I could say, move the arm to grab the object. It could be a call that I would make. And then I would have a program that just runs the arm, the controls for the arm. I'd have another program that just runs the planning for the arm. And so if I make that ROS service call, you know, the, the executive at the top, the thing that says, you know, does all the decision making and says it's time to pick up the bottle you know, we'll make the call to the program that says do the path planning to, to figure out how to pick up the bottle and then feed that plan to the controller that will then run that path plan to actually execute the grasp on the bottle. And so what's cool about that and what's interesting about that is that the, that actually really kick-started quite a, a lot of work in robotics. At the time that Ross was initially released, that was when I was kind of starting grad school, um, everyone's robot was custom. And every library that you were doing for anything was either custom or was developed by one lab. And then you would have to either get to know that library in, inside out, or maybe you just didn't have an expert on that topic at your university. And you'd be like, let's assign a grad student to figure out how so-and-so's software works to make this thing work. Right? <laughs> and then suddenly Ross comes along and you're like, okay, well, I download the package and I hook up the sensor and I have 3D point cloud data that tells me where the object is. And now I have, um, you know, a controller that tells me how to move the arm and I have a path planner. And so now I can think about the part of the problem that I'm focusing my right. research on. Okay. Right. And so that kickstarted so much awesome work. Right. Um, so that's, that's part of how it became so popular is, is actually that you were able to pick up pieces of robot projects, stitch them all together and suddenly you're able to work. And it's all open source. Like anyone can go to the internet, download this stuff. Um, you know, even if you don't have a robot, you can download the gazebo simulator. You can download uh, the files that describe your robot. You can download Arviz. Uh, it, it's all free. You know, like it, it, it all comes on one central software repository. You just type like sudo apt get, you know, install ROS desktop full. The whole thing will come down. And then there's tutorials online. And you can be up and running in like an afternoon. You know, not, you know, you're, you're 
you know, you're probably not going to kick off your PhD thesis in an <laughs> afternoon, but but you can you can be you can be up and running and doing interesting projects very quickly, oh, nice. which is cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What about hardware? What's what kind of processing power does it take to run one of these machi- machines or robot? I'm not even, what's the what's the preferred term even? Yeah. So so um, well. <laughs> uh, I mean, people would probably say platform, but platform can also mean just about anything. Right. right? That's true. So, uh, but I'll, I'll say what platforms I've worked with and, and what we do. Um, you know, there are people who are doing something that could broadly be classified as robotics research on little microcontroller kits like Arduino uh, or on cell phones. And then there are people who are using things that are bordering on supercomputers or even actually supercomputers in their research, right? So if you're training like a deep neural network, you are probably deploying that on your university compute cluster or you're using something that's been optimized for your GPU. Um, you know, we recently had donated to us by NVIDIA a really fancy, you know, uh, Volta architecture GPU, like like super powerful GPU specifically for deep learning tasks uh, that we use. So that's, you know, one platform that we use. It's not necessary to use something like that, but it speeds up your development a lot. It takes a lot of horsepower to train a deep network. Um, you know, but, you know, I'm going to be running a summer camp this summer and the whole thing will be on a robot architecture that is on like a $14, you know, chip that gets plugged into a much more expensive little robot, but the compute power is is very small. So, so it scales with the problems that you're trying to do. Uh, some problems require quite a lot of compute horsepower. Um, you know, simply controlling a robot is, believe it or not, uh, not that CPU intensive. Uh, motion planning can be strikingly CPU intensive because you have to think about, if you're thinking about robot arm, you have to think about not colliding with the table while planning a path to reach to the object that you're trying to reach to and then orienting the gripper around the object and then closing and picking it up. All the dynamics that are involved in picking up the object because maybe you're doing force control. So you have to estimate how much force I need to pick it up and when I know when someone's tapping on the shoulder or the arm things like that, right? So suddenly those things require, you know, something more along the lines of, you know, desktop grade horsepower. Uh, Or if you look at uh, what we did for RoboCup at home, uh, we were driving our robot with three computers simultaneously linked up through a network um, and could easily come up with work for much, much more computational horsepower, you know, and do throw as much horsepower as we can at it. Um, just because some of the problems that we deal with are so complicated. And then we also send data out to the cloud for cloud processing for things like uh, getting speech transcripts when people talk to the robot and we want to process uh, the language out of that. Um, You know, that goes off, in our case, out to the Google Cloud, to Google Speech API. Um, You know, there's, there's a wide variety of platforms that we use, and each of those are sort of tailored to the issue that we have at hand. More horsepower is always better though. More horsepower is just uniformly makes life easier. <laughs> makes sense. Um, so for, I guess, for example, let's specify like Nico, for example, like mm-hmm. what kind of what kind of hardware? Yeah, so Nico's, Nico's hardware evolved over the time that I was there. <laughs> when I started at Yale, uh, Nico used a cluster of 12 Qunix machines. So Qunix is a distributed operating system. Nico did not run ROS. Nico was entirely custom software as well. And, uh, you know, by the time I left, uh, computers had gotten a lot better and that cluster was no longer 
any faster than my desktop machine. And, uh, you know, Cunix is a pretty awesome operating system, but at the same time, uh, it's a lot faster to develop software where I click one button and deploy an update to my robot and test it out and see what's going on on my desktop. So by the time I left, Nico, uh, you know, was connected by USB to, um, you know, a desktop computer running it to something gigahertz, you know, with a standard GPU entirely custom software driving the whole thing over a network of microcontrollers that drive uh, the, the joints on the arms, and, you know, the joints in the head, things like that. So let's kind of move on to one of your later projects, and that was with, that's the robot that you programmed to cheat at paper, rock, scissors. Yeah, I thought this sure. was a really interesting. So, so uh, interestingly, the, uh, the, the first author on that paper, the co-author who, who, I, who I worked with that on, uh, she was an undergraduate student at Yale at the time. The way that that project sort of unfolded was she was taking um, our intelligent robotics course. And me and Mark Donitz had just um, machined a hand for the robot. So everyone wanted to use the hand. <laughs> uh, so she and Michelle Vu came to me and said, I would like to, we would like to do a project uh, with the hand and I said well pitch me a project and it's like well the robot plays rock paper scissors and I said well we need an experimental condition so let's have it cheat sometimes and so we fiddled with this idea and eventually what came out of it was uh, a pretty interesting experiment where the robot would play rock paper scissors three times during this interaction it would so it would cheat in some way so uh, one version of cheating was the robot would simply announce itself to be the winner of the round, despite the fact that it had lost the round. And then in the sort of more interesting uh, version of this, the robot would change the gesture that it had displayed uh, to, to be the winning gesture and then declare itself the winner. And uh, yeah, that, that actually has spawned a number of studies since then. That was a really cool experiment. I think that what people really liked about that experiment is that the users in the group, were, which we called the action cheat group, the, where the robot would change its gesture, um, users in that group were much, much, much more engaged in the interaction. And so one thing that you'll find if you're building uh, a human-robot interaction is that there's, there's sort of a limited threshold on how long people, like how long the illusions maintained, how long people can interact with the robot before they start to reverse engineer all the tricks that you've put into the system to, to make that an immersive experience. You know, we had people playing 20 rounds of rock, paper, scissors with a robot that this took like maybe 20 minutes to do. And the people <laughs> in the control condition where the robot, you know, didn't cheat, you know, we showed video of this at the conference, you know, they looked, they looked pissed off at us, you know, <laughs> like, like, like we told them that they're going to interact with this like high tech robot. <laughs> and 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 they're just like so bored because they're playing rock paper scissors and nothing else is happening, right? And then the people who the ro who the robot cheated for, um, you know, were much more engaged. But moreover, they attributed agency to the robot. They sort of, when they described the robot itself, they described it as if it was intelligent, right? They they used language uh, which suggested that the robot was intelligent in their description of the robot's behavior. So. In the uh, verbal cheat group, in the group where where there was no action matching up with all this, um, they reported the robot's behavior as if it was malfunctioning. 
And then in this action cheat group, you know, they reported it as if like the robot cheated, the robot did this, you know, and they're like, <laughs> they're like, you know, there was a failure of the camera system, you know, in the other, in the other case. So, so that was pretty interesting. That was a pretty exciting experiment. Very interesting. I think that's sort of, I mean, that kind of taps into this element of, I guess it, it kind of makes me think about the uncanny valley idea okay, to a degree okay, and sort of, you know what I mean? Attributing agency to the robot under different conditions, right? I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pr- pretty con- compelling experiment, I think. So, well, so when I think of the Uncanny Valley, what I think of is how lifelike is the robot versus how non-lifelike is it, right? So you could have a very compelling experience with an agent that you perceive of as intelligent, but you don't perceive of as being alive, right? I guess that's, you, yeah, you could, that's true. You could picture, you could picture, um, talking to a cell phone app, let's say that, you know, two or three years from now, the next version of Siri comes out, you're talking to Siri, and Siri says something that is insightful. And, you know, it's not, it's not a response to an instruction you gave, right? Let's say that Siri one day popped up and said something like, oh, you know, um, you bought these five items. And I think that you're trying to make this (laughs) dish and you seem to have forgotten this one. I think you should stop. And go back to the grocery store because it's not reflected on your bill, right? Let's suppose that Siri did that and and you had that interaction. And the way that Siri broached the topic was, you know, at a convenient time, you know, it wasn't while you were doing something, you know, you're driving your car. It wasn't while someone was cutting you off in your lane. It was actually completely appropriately timed. The whole thing was almost as if a human was like, oh, don't forget to buy milk because you need that for this recipe, right? Um, I think that you could, you could have a compelling... Uh, interaction with a robot that you perceive as very intelligent or an artificial agent that you perceive as very intelligent that doesn't really, you know, go into this uncanny valley territory. So what, so what's that uncanny valley territory? The uncanny valley is sort of this territory where you sort of say, uh, I'm going to go from left to right on a chart. And when I'm all the way at the left, I'm at something that is clearly robotic, you know, clearly artificial. Um, I don't perceive it as lifelike at all. And on the right of the chart is, you know, actual humans. Um, and so the theory goes, as I get close to the right of this chart, there's going to be this level of sort of um, life-likeness and how much you like interacting with the robot, how comfortable you are with interacting with the robot. And that's going to go up and up and up as I experience a more lifelike agent. You know, I'm going to be more able to cope with it socially and whatnot. And there's going to be this dip down in the floor where the agent is too lifelike to seem artificial, but not lifelike enough to seem like a person, right? Right. So that's sort of where the uncanny valley, you know, sits. I think that it's it's an interesting, compelling theory. It's something that's sort of backed by our um, experiences with robots. Like if you've if you've worked with robots for a long time and you've seen the way people interact with something like Nico, which doesn't look very human, you know, it has a sort of human schema, but you know, we didn't put skin, hair, eyes, right. you know, things on Nico. It's almost like a jo- Johnny five. I right. For right. Poor. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. No, no, it does look, it, it looks very robotic. And then if you went all the way to the right, probably um, the thing that would be the farthest to the right right now in terms of current technology would be Erica, um, which uh, that's from Hiroshi Ishiguro Takeyuki Kanda's lab in Japan. 
these are, um, you know, these are what are called android robots, and they're mild to look extraordinarily human. I think that there's been a lot of people who've been trying to probe at the Uncanny Valley experimentally for a while, trying to really establish, you know, a, an accurate measurement of the Uncanny Valley. That's one thing we really haven't seen. Um, I haven't seen a paper that displays this chart and on a sliding scale says we took something that looked completely robotic, something that looked completely human, something that was down here, and, and we got in that valley. Um, I think that coming up with the experimental protocol that will definitively demonstrate that will be really hard, right? And it would be really interesting to see that result. I actually don't know what the result of that would be. I, I know that most of my colleagues are completely convinced that we'll find something in there. And I know that a lot of time when you look in the popular media, people say this thing is definitely in the uncanny valley for me. But you really have to, you really have to consider what that means. Because a lot of time, I think when people cite the uncanny valley, they say, wow, you know, the character in that video game looks so lifelike. It was so incredible, right? But what they should be saying is, that thing was awful, right? <laughs> right? Because, because the next evolutionary leap brought us to a place where it looked less lifelike as a result, where it looked terrible because, it, because the difference between that and reality was so subtle that we start to nitpick little details about it. You know, we think that it looks like it's sick or we think that it looks like it's suffering because the, because the behavior of the musculature, the movement isn't quite right, but everything uh, else is on. That's an right? interesting point. And so I would actually say that it's a really interesting hypothesis, that it's a really cool area of research but that, but that the, the thing that will really drive this thing home will be an experimental evidence that really shows people having like a super, super negative reaction to something that's practically human. And, and that's, that's going to require some real thought, even how to conduct that experiment. It, it, you, have to, you have to say like, because you can't just act out on your intuitions there, right? Like you have to, one, objectively demonstrate that it's more human and more lifelike than the thing that precedes it, and then demonstrate that people rated it as less human and less lifelike, despite the fact that you know objectively it's more lifelike. That's, that's a tough scale to build. It'll be really interesting to see what comes out of that research because there are people who are building incredibly lifelike robots now, right? And so, so we see the hint that those technologies are going to be available to us for this type of experiment. But, you know, even what the protocol would be and how you would establish that sliding scale, that's going to be subject to so much hot debate that I would imagine that, you know, the first handful of papers that really, really, really probe this, um, I mean, the peer review process. <laughs> Years, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know why, but for some reason this brings to mind, I don't know if you're familiar with the film Ex Machina. That's not Ex Machina. Yep. Uh, so I, I just thought it was sort of interesting in in that film the way that I guess the main character maybe it was Dom Hall Gleason it was sort of interesting his interaction with the android I don't know he sort of he sort of attributed this human kind of cognitive right. state right. to the ro at at his detriment spoiler alert right right which I thought is a really interesting so it kind of tapped into his emotions where this you know, artificial intelligent Android sort of <laughs> flipped, flipped things on its head, right? Right. Um, yeah, X-Machina is an interesting movie. Um, I, I, I think 
It's one of a handful of artificial intelligence and robot movies that I've seen where I really think that the authors and the writers of the movie read current work in robotics as their sort of source of inspiration for the movie. Um, I could, I, I could, I could actually cite papers that I say they looked at that paper when they wrote this movie because this happens in the movie. Interesting, right? Point something out. Yeah, I don't know because I, <laughs> I, I don't know that I would want to put any, any oh, okay, other researchers you. on the spot like right. that. But I, I'll also say that you know it, it definitely struck a nerve in robotics because of the end of the movie. Right at the end of this movie, you know, like you sort of see that a lot of ethical quandaries. It sort of established, I think that you could establish firmly that the the guy who develops the AI in that movie is behaved unethically by the end of the movie. You know, clearly unethically. You know, to to where he's you know sexually abusing artificial intelligence right. agents. You know, it's clearly clearly inappropriate behavior. And but but even if you didn't drive it to that place, you know, there are all these deactivated robots. You know, right. that that are bordering on as intelligent as people. Uh, and you see them clearly suffering and imprisoned and destroying them, you know, committing suicide. Basically, I, I think that I think that that movie sits in a very uneasy place <laughs> in the community of being like extremely well researched and then and then having this like very dark angle. I don't know. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good movie. I certainly looked at it and I was like, oh man. I hope that the end of artificial intelligence is not the way it's portrayed in that movie. And and I hope that the community never goes anywhere like that. I don't think that they will. You know, I've, 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 I haven't met a lot of unethical actors in research. You know, that's not that's not why they got into this. Right. You know, but yeah, I did find uh, the scenes that you're discussing very interesting. And I don't know how far we want to go into movie spoilers and stuff like that. But uh, so I guess spoiler. It's been out for a while. Yeah. I mean, it's to hell it's very, with it. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's interesting in in this um in these interactions between the human and the robot where they start to, it's been a while since I've seen it. I remember it being very interesting where they start to probe some sorts of uh, theory of mind type stuff, like, you know, thoughts, beliefs, intentions, uh, but attributing thoughts, beliefs, intentions to each other. And then, you know, the robot kind of manipulating the emotions of the guy who's brought in for the experiment. Uh, You know, this shows very high levels of, you know, intelligent capabilities of course it can because it's a human writing the plot and you know but but it's interesting in that they actually do kind of put into some thought into if you knew you were interacting with a robot you know like like it's revealed pretty early cuz her whole lower torso right. looks you know computer you know if you knew you were interacting with a robot could it convince you that it's intelligent that's not the question it's asked by the Turing test right the question asked by the Turing test is if you don't know that it's a robot if you don't know it's a computer can it convince you that it's a human? You know, uh, in this case, the question is: if you if you know it's artificial, if you know it's a machine, can it still convince you that it's intelligent? As intelligent as a person, ha- you know, has all the rights that a person does. You know, that's you know, I think another super interesting question. I actually think that that's probably the question that'll be answered when society accepts that artificial intelligence is a real thing. Is that despite the fact that you know that you're talking to your car? You know, you perceive your car as intelligent <laughs> in every way that matters, right? You know, I, I, I think that I think that, that would be the point at which society really accepts that AI is like a real, you know, like AI in the sense that you have this like strong AI, you know, this this human like AI, that that's a real thing. That'll be that'll be the mark. Is 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 when you know you're talking to a machine, you still consider it to have all the you know, you know, you have the ethical obligations that you would to a human. 
because it's as intelligent as a human. What fascinates me, this, the angle that fascinates me about this is sort of delving into, you know, I was thinking about this earlier when I was kind of prepping for our talk today is what, what are emotions? You yeah. know what I mean? And because we often think, you know, that humans, you know, we claim some rational basis behind our decision making, right? But I mean, I think that's pretty clear that there's some element, you know, emotions impact that. But whenever you're transferring that to, to artificial intelligence, do they have emotions or, right. you know what I mean? How can we even, like, that's a concept yeah. that is interesting I, to me. So, 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 so emotions are interesting for a number of reasons. Difficult to get into that in a, in a way that's satisfying, right? right? Because, because we'd like to approach it from a philosophical perspective. We'd like to say, does the robot have real emotions? Does it have real happiness, right? And when we address that in the community that studies this, in the human-robot interaction community, we almost never refer to emotions. We'll refer to affect, positive affect and negative affect. So affect would be the expression of the emotion. So positive affect is, you know, looking like you're happy. Negative affect is looking like you're sad or angry or something like that. You know, it's, it's interesting because emotions represent some of the most primitive types of processing that we do. Right. You know, like your dog can be happy or sad. Your dog probably cannot work out complex differential geometry problems that I can make a computer work out. Um, you know, so, so these higher executive functions in, in human thought, you know, versus the fly, fight or flight instinct you know, in right. the most basic intelligent animals, you know, so the most basic animals are exhibiting some type of emotional response, right? Or not, not the most basic, you know, like, you know, not the simplest, simplest, but like most, you know, like a bee will attack you, you know, <laughs> like, so, you know, the very simplest uh, animals that I can think of will exhibit some type of emotional response, uh, or I guess those are insects, yeah. but you know, insects are part of the animal. So then you get to, you know, where we invested all our, of our effort in artificial intelligence. And, you know, the early effort was like, let's play chess. You know, we focused on executive function. We focused on these top level decision making functions. And we got really good at those things. So, you know, where does that leave emotion? Well, we do a lot of interesting emotional processing. You know, there are software libraries that will look at your face and say they're making a happy face now. They're making a sad face now. They're interested, disinterested. You know, and we've worked a lot on the expression of it. We've worked a lot on the robot looks like it's happy, you know, or it looks like it's sad. And we're still working on that. Like, and we're still working on both angles of this. But then to get to the philosophical, does the robot actually feel happy? Does it actually feel sad? It's, it's a tough area to explore. I think that the way we'll get there, though, is uh, by continuing to engineer these exterior behaviors and by continuing to analyze um, these exterior behaviors, both in terms of emulating them and interpreting them on the robot. And then the more we do that, I think the more intimately we'll come to understand these systems and their expressions and how they work. I think that, you know, neuroscience will come farther than it has. I think that psychology will, will come farther than it has. I think that there will be a big interplay here, you know, right in that cognitive science, you know, circle of, you know, of that Venn diagram where we really come to wrestle with and understand what emotion is and emulate it. But then the question will still be in people's head, uh, are we modeling and emulating emotion or is the robot actually experiencing emotion? You know, I think that I think that we're so far from weighing in on that, that that's so far off in the future that that we have so many milestones to to cross before we get there that I don't even know what the experiment would look right. like to establish that. 
I mean, I'm just thinking in the context of evolutionary, right? There's some evolutionary reason, whether it be, you know, beneficial. I, you know, I guess you would have to argue there'd be some, there's some benefit to having emotions oh, yeah, for totally. human beings yeah, absolutely. in terms of, uh, you know, what, what have you. So. Yeah. I mean, I taking, mean emotions drive your behavior, right? right? You know, like, I mean, I, I get up every morning and show up to work because I'd be sad if I lost my job, you know, or, or because I feel <laughs> you might be happy. Or, or, if, or <laughs> no, I, 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 I love what I do. Uh, I, you know, I find a lot of fulfillment in, in getting my work done, you know, um, and, and, you know, that is an emotion that drives my behavior. I, I mean, and, and if I wasn't subject to that, to that emotion, I'd, I'd probably, you know, go work for a bank and make a bunch of money, you know, like, like, you know, and, and there would be something else driving my behavior, you know, I'd optimize some other function, you know, so, so, so emotions, you know, definitely drive your behavior at, at all levels. They're also how we, you know, re reinforce behavior, you know, you when you were a kid, your parents would punish you when you did something wrong. You know, they would reward you when you did something right. And this is, you know, in some way playing uh, on the mechanisms that reinforce your behavior, which are realized through emotion, right? Like, like if, if, you know, there's that sort of slogan, the t-shirt uh, that sort of says, you know, the only things that you'll ever really enjoy are serotonin and dopamine, right? But these are the <laughs> mechanisms to reinforce behavior, right? So, so, you know, emotion has um, a clear impact on, on your human behavior. You know, clearly, clearly the analysis of emotion is going to play uh, a major role in the future of artificial intelligence at some point. Uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the mechanism that's made its way deeply, deeply, deeply into, you know, the way that we practice the field right now. Uh, but as we get more human robots and we want to have more human-like interactions and we want to reinforce behavior in more human-like ways, more intuitive ways, we'll probably get there. Uh, and the reason that I say that is because it's one thing to build, to build a device that can do things for you. If you want to deploy a truly, truly, truly complicated robotic system, let's say that, uh, you know, one of the things that I work on at UT Austin is, is I'm the lead for our RoboCup at Home team. RoboCup at Home is all about building domestic service robots, robots that you would deploy in your home that would pick up after you. Like the Jetsons. Yes, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. That would, you know, cook, clean, do all these things and would accept verbal commands. Okay. The interface to that, if I put it into the home of a completely non-tech savvy user, that interface can't be programming the robot to do those things, right? So what's it going to be, you know? And what it will probably be is a merge between design, you know, the pragmatics of working with what you have, and an understanding of human behavior and designing an interface that is driven by the natural human behaviors that you're going to elicit, right? So if your robot is using, um, you know, range finders all over your house to locate all the objects, let's say that I rig the whole house with cameras so the robot can see, and, you know, the robot can pay attention to things and understand things without doing any visual behavior to convey that. Something major has been lost in your communications loop between you and the robot, right? So now let's consider if you're trying to reinforce or stop behavior, you start screaming because the robot is setting something on fire. It doesn't know, <laughs> right. you know, it's cooking <laughs> and, and something's on fire and you're screaming and it has no way of interpreting the emotional content and importance of what you're, you know, conveying. So, so you remain at low priority despite the fact that it's an emergency, right? Clearly, the, the, the emotional content of what's being 
um, communicated is going to have to be explored at some point to make this a really effective system, right? And I think that I think that we will uh, via those exact vectors probably, or via just people being intellectually interested in the concept, uh, we'll start to explore this. Some of this has been, uh, you know, explored uh, already by people who are interested in developing more intelligent user interfaces for robots or user interfaces for for robots that interact with children, educational context, things like that. And, and um, you know, the advances in those areas are, are definitely going to impact HRI because it's going to provide this, this capability to autonomously understand the emotional content of what you're conveying. And if you can react to that in a meaningful way, you know, then you can build a richer, fuller user interface to your robot, right? And, that's, and, and even if it comes down to that very engineering-oriented goal, you know, we're going to do quite a lot of, you know, academic research to understand the content of this just right. because it drives necessary functionality that we want. That was a great example. I think you did a, such a great job of grounding that in something that I don't think is, you know, that's not that far away versus sure. these more philosophy of the mind sort of questions. Like, sure. What, you know what I mean? Because I, uh, I think what interests me too, like going, I mean, this is projecting way out there in the future in terms of the field is, you know, in the context of, more, you know what I mean? In, a, in the sense where an artificial intelligence is in many ways sort of immortal. Sure. If there's no, if there's no death, is there fear? You know what I mean? And that philosophy of the mind element, I think, is so interesting in, in relation to what emotions are. Right. And if, you know what I mean, these evolutionary processes within humans that have left us with these emotions to get, you know, to procreate the species and continue life and so forth. You know, when, whenever you remove that context, you know what I mean. That sort of underlying code, that DNA code. You know what what happens? I think that's the interesting question. I, and I, I think that uh, when when I when I approach those questions, I, I try to be as pragmatic as possible in my approach. And and the first thing that comes to mind, and actually this feeds into a topic that I know you want to talk about, uh, the the. Um, the self-reasoning, the, the self-modeling work, the, the interactions with the mirror. Um, you know, I say, what do I, what can I study now that will have an impact when we get to that, you know, down the road question, right. you know? So if we want to understand, you know, self-awareness, you know, in the case of my personal research, I, I tried to be as pragmatic as possible in my approach to say, what can I test right now and demonstrate that I can do? And then, the commentary will follow. And the commentary followed. You know, the commentary <laughs> on, on self-awareness definitely followed. Um, you know, at, at a rate that, you know, is, 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 you know, breathtaking, the types of questions that it opens up, things that uh, I hadn't even initially considered when I, when I got into that area. But, you know, if, if I can take a pragmatic approach and I can say, well, what can I engineer now? What can I understand now? What experiments can I do right now? That contribute to that, then I don't have to operate strictly in the realm of the hypothetical, right? Um, you know, I can't answer uh, what it means to be conscious, uh, <laughs> but I can certainly answer um, how you can get a robot to determine the visual perspective of a mirror. It can use a type of self-reflective modeling and thinking in order to do that. I can model that behavior in my robot in a way that reproduces the behavior, and I can say these are the necessary ingredients for the behavior. And, you know, I can't say how does it work in people, and I can't say what are all the ethical consequences of that, uh, but I can certainly build a system that does that, and I can push that envelope as far as I can. And I think that by doing so, 
eventually, you know, we'll get to these to these large hypothetical, you know, what's my place in the universe type <laughs> questions. But but seriously, when I say that, like the the gut reaction is that that's a it is it, it you know when I say that I do say that with with a with a you know a funny tone and I mean it that way, but at the same time I also completely rationally soberly mean that if we answer these more basic forms of these questions that that the more abstract forms that that that, that really we would like to ask you know because we want to understand who we are right. right. We study artificial intelligence partly because we want mechanisms that do these things, but partly because we want to understand who we are, right? Like we want to understand what it means to think. We want to understand what it means to be alive. And if you could pick up a book that explained all that to you and say like, this is, you know, why you feel the way that you do and how you can correct your behavior. And like, you know, like, um, you know, just like, you know, what your life meant, you know, like it's appealing to think about AI in those terms. And I think that you can pick AI problems that have commentary on those things. The thing that you can't do is answer those questions tomorrow, you know? And so, so the answer is always going to fall a little bit short of this fantasy answer. And there's, there's a compulsion to try to give this bigger answer than you can give. There's a compulsion to, to say, um, I think that, you know, conscious thought works like this. And this explains everything that you could ever want to know about what it is to be human, you know, it explain it either explains the existence or non-existence of the soul, right? It explains all these things, it, it, you know, uh, or explains what it would mean to build an artificial intelligence that you would want to be friends with, you know, <laughs> like, like, you know, you, you know, or you can say it, it answers a smaller question uh, that plays a role in that, but it gave me a really concrete answer to that smaller question. And, and, you know, I, I do build my systems in that smaller, you know, framework. But I think that that's why they're going to have lasting impact on those on those questions, right? I mean, that's just good science, I think. Yeah, of course, part, right? of course, of course. Starting with those building blocks. Right. Where does something, this is kind of maybe even going in a different topic, but this is the Schizoid Podcast. I'm, I'm kind of curious, sure. um, just in the popular imagination, where does something like an IBM Watson fit in this, in this conversation? Not only, ju- and maybe not specifically this emotional, you know, this very philosophical theory of the mind element, but maybe related more so to your particular so, field so of study. I have to be honest in that I don't know enough about the guts of Watson to really perfectly answer that. Watson's a really complicated system. Uh, it's able to do all kinds of question answering and inference. Um, you know, it's able to pick through large databases of information. It's able to give rich natural language responses to questions posed in natural language. And I know that there's a lot of tweaking and tuning that makes it suitable to that task, that makes it work. What I don't know is, is enough that, about what's under the hood to give a really super meaningful answer to that, unfortunately, uh, because I do find it to be a really interesting uh, system, one that I haven't followed up on enough on to 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 really give you know as as meaningful commentary on that as I like, unfortunately. Oh, not a problem. Yeah. Uh, totally get it. I mean, just throwing it out there. But uh, yeah, I'm sort of curious too in terms of what would what is machine learning yeah, in the sure. context of this cuz is it is it even different or is this is this um, a separate category or is this tied to cuz i don't really well, s- necessarily understand so, the distinction exactly so machine learning 
is is a is a pretty specific area of artificial intelligence. And I've heard a couple different definitions of what machine learning are, you know, is. I've heard it described, I think Rich Carwana gave the description of machine learning is what statistics would have been if we'd had computers when statistics was being developed, right? You know, there are a number of different machine learning algorithms that uh, give you a bunch of different um, methods of modeling data. Yeah, different ways to model data based on exemplars. There are different forms of machine learning. There are different types of machine learning. So what is machine learning is a, is a big, big question, right? So you could look at something like a classification problem, which is an example of a machine learning problem, where I'm going to say, you know, I, w I want to do image classification. And I want to identify what all the different objects in my house are, right? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a library of pictures and I'm going to feed those into my machine learning algorithm. And hopefully my machine learning algorithm will, given future pictures, be able to tell me uh, if it's a bottle or a cat or a car or whatever, right? That's, that's what's called a classification problem. So you would... People would normally start this conversation at binary classification. And the first example that leaps to mind is, is awful, but medical diagnosis. You have cancer, you don't. And we have a whole bunch of tests that we're going to do. And we're going to take, you know, the raw number from that test, you know, like your red blood cell count, your body temperature, you know, your height, your weight, you know, all these things. We're going to feed them into our machine learning algorithm. And our machine learning algorithm will given this exemplar tell you whether or not it thinks that you have cancer based on a library of previous people who were, you know, put into the algorithm, some of which were known to have cancer, some of whom were not known to have cancer. That's one type of machine learning. Um, another thing would be like a regression problem. So a regression problem might be, I want to go, I'm trying to think of this. A regression problem is, is a real valued problem. It's something where like, I want to drive my car, and I want to turn 36 degrees to the left. So how far do I have to turn the wheel to make that happen? Or I want my car to arrive in exactly this position. So how much gas do I put? When do I hit the brakes? How do I turn the wheel to arrive in this exact position? Those would be regression problems. Um, and then there are supervised and unsupervised methods. So a supervised method, you would provide a label. You would say these people have cancer and these people don't. An unsupervised method might say, well, these people are similar and these people are, are, are similar based on some metric. You know. Uh, that would be an unsupervised thing. So so it's a broad, broad area. Another type of learning would be reinforcement learning, where uh, you compute the reward for a behavior. So this might be like the robot wants to maximize its score at something. It wants to, you know, win soccer. You know, it wants to do this. Um, and And what behaviors does it need to enact in order to do that? So it will go through an exploration of the space it will be assigned a reward for each action state pair, right? So state being like the, the state of the world and then the action being to transition to another state. And I'll say, okay, like, you know, if, if I got this much reward, then this is the best action, the one that brings me to the closest goal, and then this will, you know, closest to my goal, and this will reinforce my behavior. So, you know, it's a broad area. You know, it's all of these things. It's, uh, you know, more than that for someone... Like me, right now, it's uh, something that I use in my research in order to, you know, achieve the ends of the things that I want to do with my robot, you know, object recognition, uh, motion planning, 
different behaviors that I want to cause my robot to, to engage in, to do. Nice. Um, before I took us down that, uh, I guess that tangent, we, you had mentioned, uh, delving into, I guess, a little bit of the mirror testing. Cause I don't think yeah. we, did we, we hadn't discussed that yet. We haven't discussed it yet. We discussed it before we started recording. Right. But we didn't, gotcha. We okay. Discussed it. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, maybe that'd be a good spot to finish up. We're at about a, a little over an hour or so. Maybe. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I think about things that I'm super proud of that I've done uh, work-wise, uh, cer- certainly my work on self-modeling is, is, is a big part of it. Now, now, there's other stuff that I'm doing at UT that I love. Um, so, so just to briefly discuss current work. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm on two projects that, I, that I'm pretty instrumental in. Uh, those would be building wide intelligence. This is a fleet of robots that roam around the Gates Dell complex. Uh, they're what we would call service robots. You give them like a verbal instruction, and the robot attempts to go do that thing. And this is a you know highly engineered complex system that does you know any number of things. It uses machine learning techniques, computer vision techniques, uh, motion planning techniques, all sorts of different things. It uses natural language. You communicate those things as words. Um, and you know that that's one project. The other project is I'm the lead for RoboCup at Home. This is an international competition for robots that are actually quite similar to the BWI bots, uh, except that it's uh, a robot platform that you would you would think about you know purchasing, putting in your home, and then we put it into a simulated apartment. It looks like a TV studio, and there are judges who kind of sit outside, and then uh, a judge, a referee goes inside, gives the robot verbal instructions. The robot does that thing. Right. So that's that's kind of, you know, the current horizon of my stuff. The stuff that I did for my PhD thesis is certainly the stuff that's that's prob- probably among the best known stuff that I've done. Right. And so what was that and how does that work? Well, somewhere around the third year of my PhD, uh, I had been working on uh, some some interesting problems relating to a robot learning how its eyes move. And uh there is an angle of self-awareness that is understanding your body and your senses and how they work in conjunction with each other. And this has been really widely explored both in uh, cognitive science and psychology. It's a certain area of cognitive science and psychology. But to, to get to the pitch, um, uh, me and Skaz, my doctoral advisor, literally sat in his house for like a week and said, how could we develop this into like a grant application, a pitch, and then this pitch would eventually become your doctoral thesis. And so we explored all these different areas of, you know, you know, self-awareness and how we would approach it. And the basic notion became, well, well, how would we build a robot that passes the mirror test? And so the mirror test goes like this. So I guess it was 1970 or 1969, Gordon Gallup did a study with monkeys. And I, I've heard that Anderson might have actually been the first one to do the mirror test, but I'll, I'll tell you what the mirror test is. You have an animal in an enclosure. Uh, the animal has never interacted with a mirror before, so you put a mirror into the enclosure and you allow the animal to habituate to the presence of the mirror to understand it. So most animals, when they're first introduced to a mirror, will behave socially towards the mirror, like dogs will bark at the other dog trying to play with it. Monkeys and gorillas will, you know, posture towards the other animal, you know, they will like be like aggressive or unaggressive towards the animal as, as their interaction dictates. After those behaviors have gone away, what you'll do is you will discreetly mark the animal somewhere on its fur or skin. 
or not discreetly, depending on how you're setting up the uh, the test. But you might put a, an odorless, uh, non-tactile dye on the fur of the forehead of like uh, a monkey or a chimpanzee, and the monkey will, you know, look into the mirror. And if it sort of touches the mirror, you know, like, hey, there's, a, a, you know, that animal look, look, looks like it's bleeding, then you go, okay, the animal doesn't understand this. If you, if the animal kind of touches itself and inspects its own mark, the animal's interpreted to have passed the mirror test to possess some degree of self-awareness to where they know what they look like, they know that it's different, and, and you know, that's the mirror test in brief. What would it take to engineer a robot that could do this, right? And so uh, we sat down and we broke this, we wrote this plan for like six experiments that we would do that would enable a robot to, to pass a mirror test, right? And this had to do with modeling uh, how the robot moves, how its senses work, uh, with perspective taking. It had to do with understanding its 3D structure, so the 3D shape of the robot, the coloration and materials of those structures, so you know what it looks like with respect to that structure. And then uh, the causal relationship between actions that it's enacted and then the changes in the environment that result. And, um, and so we said, if we could engineer these six parts of the system, put them together, then we could arrive at a robot that would be able to pass this mirror test. So there is another mirror test that needs to be discussed. Actually, first, there's another mirror test that needs to be discussed, not because it's like super relevant but it's it's one that demonstrates dramatically failures of animals to to do their <laughs> test. My favorite one is called it's I can't remember the exact title. I'm so sad. Uh, but it's a new mark test uh, for self recognition. I think I think that was like Burkhart and Heschel, and uh, it's got um, they have these uh, pygmy marmosets, which are very small monkeys, and there is a test where they spray chocolate foam onto the fur of the pygmy marmoset. And instead of trying to scrape the foam off of itself, it tries to lick the foam off of the mirror <laughs> pygmy, right? And and there's a picture in this in in the in the paper of the pygmy marmoset trying to to lick the foam off, which is hilarious. And uh, <laughs> so that's great. But they do another test in that in that paper, which demonstrates the type of mirror test that's done in my thesis, which is they have a uh, a monkey in a cage. They have another pygmy marmoset in a cage. The marmoset is sitting on a shelf. And the shelf is a couple inches from the wall of the cage. And the number of inches there is wide enough that the marmoset can reach its arm, but not that it can poke its head under the shelf, right? But there's a mirror tied to the outside of the cage or tied to the inside of the cage so that the marmoset can see under the shelf, right? Well, under the shelf are food pellets, right? So if the marmoset can use the mirror to see the food pellets and do the spatial reasoning that it needs, then it can reach the food pellets. And if it can't, then it's not going to get the food pellets, right? So, so there's no way for the marmoset to directly witness the food pellets. It has to use the mirror, and then it has to use the transformation of the mirror in order to perform the motor skill. That's what we demonstrated in my thesis with our robot, is, is, a, is an analogous capability. So what the robot does um, is it does what's called motor babbling, which is it thrashes its arm around in front of its face. And normally what's done with motor babbling is that you are interpreting the vector of joint angles. So like 30 degrees, 40 degrees, you know, 30 degrees and 40 degrees and the two rotational angles of the shoulder and then 60 at the arm and then something at the wrist. And then that determines the position of my hand in space. So what we did is instead is we inferred how the arm moves, the, 
structure the arm based on that motor babbling procedure. So instead of saying this vector of joint angles gets me to this point in space using machine learning, what we would do is we would say, can we learn the structure of the arm and then use the algorithms that given the structure of the arm would determine its position to determine where the, where the hand would be in space. So what this is saying is saying, can I determine like the shape and structure of the arm rather than determine the outcome of my motor skill, right? Rather than tracking directly the form of where my hand will be in space, give the math that describes how my hand will be in space given a model of the arm and then learn the model that does that, okay? So this can be modeled in, in linear algebra using what are called the de Novit-Hartenberg parameters. This is how an engineer would sit down and describe the motion of a robot arm. Um, and then, but we learn those parameters for the arm. There's another model called the pinhole camera model. It's used for stereo vision. And what this gives me is two projections describing each of the eyes. And the projection will include things like the focal length of the camera, but it'll also include things like the position of the camera in space. So uh, if I'm able to take those parameters, I can look at the same point in two cameras. And if I know it's the same point, I can tell you where the point is in 3D. And if I know where a point is in 3D, then I can project it in 2D into both the cameras. I can say, if I know where this point is in 3D, this is the pixel that it will ah, reside okay. in, right? So what I did is I worked out the math for the Ford kinematics of the robot's arm and for the projection for where the hand would be. And you can come up with one equation that says, when I provide this set of joint angles, if everything's calibrated properly, then I know where the hand will be in 2D in both eyes. But as a consequence, I also know where it is in 3D. And I also know that if I tracked its pixel in 2D in the left and right camera, that I could reconstruct where it was in 3D. And so what I did is I built a learning algorithm that will allow me to learn the structure of the arm and learn its kinematics. And then I married that to the 2D uh, parameterization of what it means to track the hand in both the eyes. And what that gave us was something that was pretty unique. What that gave us was that the robot could look at itself and learn the calibration of its cameras and the calibration of its arms simultaneously, which are typically two separate processes done with external routines. So instead of measuring using a chessboard calibration target, which is how you normally do this for the cameras, uh, the robot can, uh, it starts with a candidate calibration. We never worked out all the, I actually did work out all the details. I just never published them. Uh, and I got to work on that. <laughs> but uh, but um, you could thrash the robot's arm around in front of the camera and you could establish the camera calibration and you could establish the kinematic calibration. You didn't need to look at an external device to do that calibration. The robot would learn about it by looking at itself doing its own behaviors. So this gives you this tightly calibrated, what we call self-model that describes the robot's arm through its senses, and also learned about its senses by moving its arm around. You can take the same model, and then you can look into a mirror, and you can say, okay, I'm gonna thrash my arm around in the mirror, and now what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna calibrate the visual perspective of the mirror based on my hand. And so what I do is I say, oh, well, if I move my hand like this, this is where the mirror must be, and this is how the reflection works on the environment. So now I can think about a virtual camera existing on the opposite side of the mirror that tells me this new perspective. And so the consequence of that is that when I look into the mirror, I know that naively I see something on the other side of the mirror, 
but I know that in reality it might be behind me, right? So this is sort of analogous to that test where the uh, where the um, where the pygmy marmoset is looking for food pellets under his shelf because it knows right. the spatial transformation between the mirror and the food pellets in its arms, so it's able to reach. And so working inverse kinematics like that through the mirror, you know, my robot could also reach. We didn't do that experiment either. We should have done that one. Instead, what we did is we measured how accurately the, the calibration of the model looks. As a consequence, you would be able to do that type of reaching, but we should have just made it do the reaching too. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, mea culpa. Should have gone, gone back and done that one. Uh, actually built that system and, and then just never uh, did an experiment that, that would publish those, you know, publish those results. So probably I'll... Try, try to beef up the arm at, at UT and make it work nice. like that. So, so that, that was kind of the punchline of that experiment. And, and similar experiments have been done in human infants where they uh, test the ability of the infant to determine spatial transformations by putting like toys behind their head, you know, desirable toys that they want to play with while they're interacting with the mirror. So maybe the babies, you know, playing in the mirror with their mother, but their favorite toys are over their mother's shoulder, right? And so they have this reason to engage the mirror and to keep on looking directly at the mirror, but then they see the desirable stimulus, and if they turn around and grab the toy, then we know that the kid is able to, to do that type of spatial reasoning. It's a simpler form of, you know, this, this more complicated experiment, and it doesn't require you to recognize your own appearance in the mirror, which is uh, probably the direction that, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll start up some experiments of that nature at UT and uh, be able to explore that a little bit too, where, where the robot would be able to actually do some self-recognition and possibly pass the test specifically. Man, I'm just amazed by your problem-solving ability. It's just fascinating, the process. But yeah, it totally makes sense. But it's kind of funny because I'm in, I don't know, you have that very logarithmic style of thinking. I'm sort of this, you know, schizoid podcast, sure. schizoid <laughs> thought process, right? Like right. I'm never, know, you know, and it's ideas come and it's like, choo, 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 choo. So it's kind of interesting to see. Well, I mean, I, I see you operate. I think I, I didn't arrive at any of those, um, you know, conclusions the very first time I thought about those problems. Right. Right. You know. I mean, I, it's you learn yeah, that process. Yeah. Right? Well, well, I also I learned what everyone else had to say about these things, and uh, you know, we would spitball for that for that mirror experiment. You know, Skaz and I sat around spitballing for a week to come up with the initial idea. And then four years later, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> right. you know, you know, did this mirror thing, you know, so, so, so there was, there was a lot of in between in figuring out uh, what would satisfy us, what would satisfy the scientific community that these things worked. And, and then through the experience of doing that, I also was able to say, oh, well, you know, the next steps are clearly this and, 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 and it is pretty clear what they are, but it's only clear because we did all right. these other yeah. things. It's like you, right? you taught yourself yeah. how to you taught yourself how to think about problems. Essentially, sure, sure, in many ways, sure, right, sure. But but not only that, I, uh, we we learned how to think about this problem, right? right? But you know, I, I I guess it's true, and I appreciate the comp I've worked with robots quite a lot, and said, you know, like how do we form how do we form the hypothesis that would actually demonstrate what it is that we want to demonstrate? Right. What, what the point of this experiment is. You know, I now teach two classes as part of a program called the Freshman Research Initiative at University of Texas. And one of the things that I've really been trying to impart on my students is like, hey, like, you know, you can build a really complicated robot that does everything under the sun, but that's not the point. You know, the point is to show something that's going to endure and last. And and if you're if you're if you build a super complicated robot that's able to do all these wonderful things, but you can't articulate exactly why it was able to do all those wonderful things or what it was that made that approach unique. Other people won't be able to recognize, uh, to replicate your work. They right. won't be able to use what you then did. Then it's not scientific. Right. 
And so you have to you have to state your you know the simplest version of your hypothesis, the one that actually tests what it is that you want, and then you know take that out of the context of our big system. And we have these like big robot systems that do like a million things, right? And you know it's very tempting to on your first go <laughs> at an experiment be like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to integrate this into the BWI infrastructure. And then suddenly my BWI robot will have this new capability, right? And totally true, but also totally true that that robot does a million things. And you could trick yourself into thinking that your thing solved the problem when some other system did it. Or you could completely, you know, not realize that you solved the problem because there's some interaction with some other thing down the pipeline and it didn't quite work, right? So that design where, where you say, what's the question that I'm trying to answer? What's the problem I'm trying to solve? You really have to pare it down to the minimal thing. And then hopefully, 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 you design it in a way that you're able to deploy it in your bigger robot system and show your robot doing something really cool, which, uh, you know, we have a pretty high success rate with. And, and it's super exciting to, to, to watch that unfold and be part of that. Um, but, you know, the, the way that, that we get there and the way we make that all work is by taking the smallest, simplest version of the problem first and then understand that and then say, okay, how do we put this into the BWA infrastructure? How do we put this into a robot with own infrastructure and do it? Right. Amazing podcast. Uh, I really had a lot of fun uh, learning all this stuff. I'm just mind blown here. Oh, you were super fun to talk end. to. I, I, really, I really enjoyed this. Uh, a lot of fun. So, uh, Justin, thanks again, man. I really appreciate you coming out uh, this evening and, and talking with me. Cool. Thank you. I, I Thank you for inviting me. I, I've, Absolutely. I've had a blast. I always love to have people on again at some point. So, um, definitely would love to have you back at any time you're willing. or I, I'd be or totally able. happy to come back love to have you man but uh we're gonna sign off for this evening so cool thanks again justin thank you